Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we look at two major American exhibitions that examine the art of Weimar Germany. First up, Stephanie Barron, the curator of New Objectivity, Modern German Art in the Weimar Republic, 1919-1933, which is on view at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art through January 18, 2016. The exhibition examines how artists turned away from expressionism in order to find new ways to express their skepticism about the directions in which German society was going in the years after Germany's defeat in World War I. This is the sixth in a series of major exhibitions of 20th century German art that Baron has organized at LACMA. The catalog for the show was published by Delmonico Prestel, it's terrific, and it was co-edited by Sabine Ekman. Olaf Peters, my second guest, is the curator of Berlin Metropolis, 1918-1933, which is at the Neue Gallery in New York City through January 4, 2016. It examines Weimar Cultural Activity Berlin, the German capital and the country's major business center, in a particularly broad way and features painting, photography, drawing, sculpture, collage, architecture, film, advertising, and fashion. The show's catalog is also terrific, and it's published by Prestel Verlag. But first, Stephanie Barron. After the break. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents After Picasso, 80 Contemporary Artists, on view September 19th through December 27th. After Picasso is a major exhibition examining Picasso's potent legacy and ongoing impact on several generations of artists. This vibrant show fills the entirety of the Wexner Center's galleries and includes a diverse array of work from international talent such as Andy Warhol, Louise Lawler, Henri Cartier-Bresson, Amy Selman, Haimo Zobring, Jasper Johns, and many more. Originally organized by the Dijkter Holland and called Picasso and Contemporary Art, this exhibition is making its only stop in the United States at the Wexner Center. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas presents Italian artist Giuseppe Pannone's first U.S. museum exhibition in more than 30 years. The exhibition, Being the River, Repeating the Forest, features 24 works from Pannone's long career highlighting the artist's deep and abiding interest in the creative forces of the artist and those of nature, reflecting the complex and intimate connection between humans and the world we inhabit. See Being the River, Repeating the Forest from September 19, 2015 to January 10, 2016. For more information, visit nashersculpturecenter.org or call 214-242-5100. Experience tomorrow's art history today for free and in a beautiful, intimate setting at Blaffer Art Museum. On view this fall, did you know we taught them how to dance? The first solo museum exhibition for British-Nigerian artist Zina Sarawiwa, and a test of art's capacity to envision new concepts of environmentalism. Also on view, Time Image, an international group survey of temporal concerns in contemporary art. More at blafferartmuseum.org. And we're back. Stephanie Barron, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, it's nice to be here. Nice to be with you. Not long after the end of World War I, many German art critics proclaimed that expressionism was or should be over, head and end. First off, why? And secondly, why was this something worth declaring? Why did it matter to these critics that a, a given ism should come to an end? I think at the end of the war and after the November Revolution, there was a tremendous sense of tiredness and 
upset with what had happened in the war. I mean, there was a devastation, there was humiliation, there was a, a, a sense of wanting to kind of turn the page and look forward. And expressionism was attached to the old. It was attached to the kind of pre-war sensibility. And people after the war and after the, after the revolution were wanting to look less passionately at life and at, at, at art than, than people were they, they were. they were tired. They were tired of what had happened in the war and the situation in which they found themselves. So there was a, a greater kind of criticality. There was a greater sense of distance a sense of being slightly more objective that began to emerge in the early 1920s. By, by 1923, 24, 25, there was an awareness that artists were looking to present the world in a more dispassionate, objective manner. And it was time basically to then declare that this new realism was something which was engaging artists. So does it work that way? Do artists hear a number of critics, a couple of whom you quote in your catalog essay, saying expressionist painting is over and do they stop expressionist painting? Because one way to think of it is Max Beckman really becomes an expressionist at this moment. Well, you know, Beckman is always a tricky character because Beckman is really sui generis. And, you know, there are aspects of Beckman that one can put into a category of new objectivity. There are aspects you can put into as expressionists. But at the end of the day, Beckman is his own his own person, and we can find works within his oeuvre that fit into different categories. But he's much harder to pigeonhole exclusively in, by one label or another. And I, and I actually, I, I don't think that artists, you know, listen to critics and then stop to say, I think it's the other way around. I think the artists are creating a body of work and critics are seeing this, and they're 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 noticing it. And and you know there was a there was a number of artists connected around the academy in Munich were very much influenced by what was going on by Italian painters who were also studying in in Munich. So there was a kind of migration of an Italian kind of sensibility that informed a certain branch of artists working in Munich that was really about a kind of respect for the classical, a sense of that you see, for instance, in someone like Georg Schrimpf um, with some of those kind of classical landscapes. And it was a kind of calmer aspect or kind of a calmer part of new objectivity. And it was quite different from what was being done, for instance, in Berlin or in Dresden. As you note in your essay, from almost the start of the period you address in this exhibition, which starts in 1919, of course, critics and historians have separated artists from this period into ideological camps, left wing and right wing. The lefty artists have tended to include, or the art historical survivors anyway, have tended to be the lefties, the, the George Grosses, the Otto Dixes, the artists who spotlighted social pro problems or the impact of the war on, on German society. The right-wing artists are, at least in the United States, less well-known today. Who were they and what, what did they paint? Oh, I mean, the, well, I mean, first of all, we tried to avoid that kind of binary just because we were trying to chart it kind of differently. Yeah, the show is set up, and we'll get to this in a minute, in, in, in kind of five chapters, if you will. But this kind of duality dates to the period itself, to the early 1920s. 
So basically, you can look at Georg Schrimm as a you know su- you know perfect example of of that kind of return to kind of the bucolic, somebody who was you know who who was working more in that kind of Munich in that Munich sensibility, and and other artists who were really trying to they weren't kind of they weren't they didn't have the same kind of criticality that that the others. If you and if you compare, for instance, Schrimpf with Daveringhausen, you know, you see kind of a real difference in, in their sensibilities. But Carlo Mensa was another one who really kind of seemed to pick up on the kind of Italian precedents that were swirling around in Munich that, that really affected a, bunch, a, a number of these artists. You know, they were interested in kind of illusionistic spaces. The objects are kind of enigmatic. But there's a kind of unease that that we feel in these works. There's there's a kind of disquiet that happens, and that's even in you know this so-called more conservative aspect of new objectivity. Yeah, there are a lot of uncomfortable moments in a lot of paintings. So as I mentioned a moment ago, you've broken the the show into five sections. So let's talk about some of those. The first section might include what most... The first section is really... And, and we set up our section so that there is a duality. It's never just one thing. It, it, we're trying to kind of always show kind of contrast. So the first section is really the aftermath of the war and life in the democracy. So we begin in a way with George Gross's harrowing portfolio of the war. Though done almost a decade after the, his war experiences, it is a kind of distillation in the most exquisite kind of detail in this print portfolio. It's a distillation of the most harrowing aspects of war, both on the battlefield and, in essence, the kind of collateral damage that we see. So that kind of grounds, you know, what the war experience was. And what is the kind of aftermath of that? Well, there is a lot of prostitution. There are disabled veterans who we basically see, you know, in on streets throughout Germany. And there's a real, this huge economic, there's inflation, and there's tremendous unemployment. So there's a kind of social misery that comes about, again, as an aftermath of the war. The flip side is the kind of life in this new democracy. The Weimar Republic was the first democracy in Germany. And there is, we find depictions of what I would call, you know, the 1%. So they're out at nightclubs, they're partying. There's a sense of, of abandon with some of, these, with some of these works. So it's a real contrast between the grittiness of the war and its aftermath and the kind of burgeoning urban life in the democracy. One of the things I think you noted in your essay, and, and that I think is in a couple of essays in the book, is that there are certain, I mean, tropes isn't quite the right word, but there are certain things that recur across paintings and works on paper, regardless of the artist, whether it's different representations of prostitutes or amputees. To what extent are these things that were just so present in German society that artists couldn't miss them? And to what extent were they things that artists consciously, in conversation with each other perhaps, seized upon as kind of exemplars of the age? I think it was pretty hard to walk down a German street after the war and not see people 
not see people who had been amputated, who were begging, who were destitute. It was pretty hard. That seems to be what filled the landscape, the urbanscape, certainly. So I don't think that's in any way just an invention, you know, of a kind of artistic imagination. I think it's pretty hardcore. And we see it as well. I mean, one of the things that this exhibition does is, is bring together photography together with paintings and, you know, drawings and prints. But particularly in the photographs, I mean, we see really very sensitive and kind of powerful photographs. Such as Walter Ballhaus's advent once it's warmer on crutches from the early 1930s. Really harrowing. And, yeah. You know, and you see it in films of the time. I mean, so this was... This was what the this this is what people were this is what life was and you know I think it's you know it's said that you know everybody every family you know after the first world war either had some had lost somebody or had somebody who was disabled you know amputees that that was just a kind of common sight in Germany another kind of idea or theme that recurs a lot is games of chance card games dominoes what have you I guess it's an easy metaphor, but... Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that we see some games, but it's really more in the first section. We kind of don't see that so much, I think, throughout the exhibition. Right, right. That's what I meant. But, That's what but I meant. In, that, in that first section, I mean, it's... They feel... I don't know. To me, when I look at those, you know, kind of disabled kind of slightly grotesque veterans sitting around a table kind of trying to play cards. It's really more kind of a, a, a bringing together of these individuals rather than the, the act of kind of playing cards. I mean, I think some of that, you know, can sometimes cross over with Dada. And some of those paintings, particularly with kind of games of chance, could also kind of come under a rubric of Dada. There are even places such as in George Grosch's Eclipse of the Sun, where the bankers or the pseudo bankers and the military industrial figures are sitting around a table and the table, you know, is covered with green felt, the, 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 the color of a card table. Yeah, except when you really look at that painting, what you really see is the, is the sword in the middle of the table that is bloodied, these headless bureaucrats. And you see Hindenburg, you know, kind of being whispered to. And then, you know, you see the sun eclipsed by the dollar sign. I mean, it's somehow when you're actually in front of the painting, it's less about what has brought them around the table in terms of a game than the starkness of the individuals. The second section of the show looks at a urban versus rural divide. And I, and I think that what's, what's interesting is if... if if people know anything about new objectivity, I think what they tend to know would be the things that we have in the first section, which is, you know, the aftermath of the war and the, the new democracy, or they know portraits. And I think one of the things that this exhibition does in a fresh way is bring together what I call the three middle sections, which is the city and the nature of landscape, man and machine, and still lives and commodities. And those those are the less known aspects, and I think that's where most people will find artists whom they really don't know. And in fact, even a lot of Germans don't know this. And many of these works we found in basements of museums. The second section, The City and the Nature of Landscape, has a really interesting kind of juxtaposition. So you have artists like Schrimpf or Schultz 
who tried to, they, they were showing the nostalgia for the kind of supposedly simpler, kind of more bucolic life of the 19th century. And there, there's a kind of contrast between depictions then of the city. The city is seen as slightly menacing. Many of the city streets don't seem to have people in them. So there's a sense of displacement. There's a sense of unease with even with the urban scapes. These are hardly what you would call paintings of the metropolis. No, they're much more like Edward Hopper than... Yeah, than... There's, they may be cityscapes, but they're lacking the bustle and the intensity that we, that we associate with the metropolis. The show includes many photographs by Albert Renger Patch, some of which are, I don't know, could almost read as German updatings of Impressionist paintings, where you have the, the, the factories belching smoke in the distance foregrounded by more bucolic countryside or, in one case, barbed wire. How, how does he fit in, and is he conscious of, of flirting with you know, 50-year-old Impressionists? You know, I, I, I find them, there's a starkness to them that I think is, is absolutely the opposite of Impressionism. So that they may, if you were to describe them and you say that, you know, the Renger Potch, you know, the industrial landscape near Essen, you know, has like some barbed wire and, you know, this, this kind of, you know, that it's, it's a kind, it, it doesn't, when you're in front of it, it feels menacing. Yeah, I think that would, that's, I think that's how it kind of updates that Impressionist or, or maybe the allotment garden landscape, which has this bucolic countryside in the foreground, but his industrialness is menacing, whereas the Impressionist was embracing. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is if you, we've actually put the allotment garden next to, ne- next to a, a painting of the, next to the Schultz painting, kind of the view of Grotzingen near Durlach, which is a, a painting that just right now, when you kind of look at a photograph of it, it looks like half the landscape is in shadow. But in fact, upon close examination, it turns out that in the foreground of that painting, those buildings are actually armament buildings. So there's a sense of that, again, collision of the future and the past, and it is not really what it appears to be kind of, you know, initially, which is you know, green hills, you know, with shadows and, you know, little buildings in them. So when you begin to pair that with, you know, the Renger Potch allotment garden, you know, look at the allotment garden. You're looking at, you know, kind of little homes and little plots of land. But in the back, what do you have? You have the encroachment of industry. You've got the smokestacks. You've got that collision between the bucolic in the foreground and the industrialization in the, in the background. So the third section kind of builds on this a little bit, you know, like like American artists, like precisionists such as Ralston Crawford or Charles Sheeler or photographers such as Margaret Bork White. A lot of German artists were intrigued by technological pro- progress and industrial modernization. Is there anything in the third chapter of the show that you think is particularly German about the way artists engaged with 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 the new, the industrial? Well, I think there's, it's a celebration of the, or it's, it's an honoring of the in, industrial, but it doesn't feel very celebratory when you're in front of it. No, it doesn't, as you flip through the catalog either. 
Yeah, I mean, it's there's a sense of kind of a soberness. There's a sense of taking these machines and kind of putting them on a proscenium to kind of examine them. And there's a flatness to the way these things are painted that it just doesn't have the same... I don't know, somehow if I'm looking at a Schiller painting, there's a greater humanity given to the to the machines that he depicts, I think, than you find, for instance, in, in like these Grossbergs. Or, or, or in the Karl Volker painting, in which the acute perspective and distance between the foreground character and the built environment and then the group of workers in the middle distance. But I think in that Volker, there's a kind of anonymity and there's a kind of sense of oppressiveness about exactly. workers, That's what I mean. yeah. you know, who are basically seen in the background next to these kind of looming kind of slightly somewhat ominous kind of buildings. And then you have the boss, you know, kind of lurking in the foreground. There's a sense of unease and, and an ominousness to, to that composition, I think. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I mean. Whereas in the Grossberg flywheel with driving belt, where Grossberg puts us right in front of the flywheel at the bottom of where the belt will be driving <laughs> is kind of similarly well, not similarly, is tenuous. You know, we're in a spot where we can be concerned. I think the juxtaposition of that flywheel with the driving belt and the Renger Potch photograph, I mean, that's like one of, I think, the best comparisons that we have in the show. Also, it helps that the Roseburg painting is small. So even just scale-wise, from across the room, you look at the Roseburg painting, and some people even think it's a photograph. But there is something about the acute angles and that kind of focusing on you know, really kind of a laser-like focus on the belt, this driving belt, that's that's pretty compelling. So both this section of the show about industry and the next section of the show about still lifes and goods are, are groups of works where there are kind of American contemporary counterparts, if you will. I mean, Charles Sheeler, who I mentioned a moment ago, is interested in some of these same kinds of things. Were the German artists aware of the American artists? Were the American artists aware of the Germans? I doubt that the American artists were aware of the Germans. Those Germans aren't aware of a lot of this work. <laughs> so I doubt that they crossed the Atlantic in the 1920s or 30s. I think that's probably unlikely. But I think that a lot of the photographers in this section were also were employed by commercial entities so that they were often promoting the products that they were that they were photographing and you see that for instance in the Finsler photograph of the toothpaste i mean clearly that's related to kind of advertising you know promotion if you will but i think that there was a celebration of the new i mean it's pretty striking when you're in the exhibition to kind of track and find representations of light bulbs so we see it for instance in the dishinger beautiful drawing with the electric kettle and the light bulb. You see it in the Finsler photograph of the electric bulb with parts of a socket. And then you also see it in one of the kind of compelling cactus paintings where on the table in front, in the Schultz, the cacti and semaphore. Well, if you look carefully in the foreground, there are two exquisitely rendered light bulbs. So that's a kind of interesting thing that kind of crosses mediums. I mean, here we have a painting, a drawing, and a photograph, equally kind of rendering kind of new electricity with great precision. You even have a light bulb in Wanda von Debschitz-Kunowski's sewing machine. 
right there in the foreground. It leads you into the industrial machinery. I think one of the other things that's really striking in this section are a series of paintings that celebrate the cactus or the rubber plant. I was, I was going to ask about the cactus. Yeah, they are kind of amazing. <laughs> well, at that time, that was a very popular accoutrement. It was, it was a very popular item that people would have in their, in their homes. And it was a sense of the exotic. It was a sense, I mean, you know, living in California, people look at this and say, well, that's, you know, what's so unusual about that? You know, cactus is not exactly native to, to, to Germany. So having cactus and, and rubber plants, agaves, these were a way of bringing the exotic home. And I find them very, almost tender portraits of plants. And clearly the photographers were interested in the forms that they found in nature. So those are kind of like close-up, like the Annie Bierman. Those are close-ups of you know, elements of these plants. But for the painters, they're, you know, comprising their entire compositions, but where they are I've kind of, you know, kind of object portraits. They're portraits of, of these plants. And they're very haunting. And they're again, there's a sense of the uncanny. There's a sense of unease with the subjects that they're portraying. They often flirt with the and I think this is the right word, anthropomorphic, where where in the Annie Bierman nineteen thirty cactus picture you mentioned a moment ago, this little tuft of thornery on the top of the cactus looks like hair. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree with you. Particularly find it in the photographs, not so much in the paintings, but definitely in the photographs. The last chapter of the show looks at some of the greatest and most iconic German art of the period, and that's portraiture. You know, no one really thinks of American portraiture of the 20s and 30s as being particularly notable, but boy, German portraiture of this era sure is. Why did so much energy and and high-end creative quality energy go into portraiture at this point? Well, I think some of it, we can look to that, that desire for kind of classification that was in the air, that desire to kind of look at people or ca- begin to kind of categorize them by types. You know, August Sander kind of begins his ambitious program to kind of dissect the different kinds of people in in German society. Now, I mean, we also know where that kind of sense of classification, you know, can kind of go down a, a can go down a very dark path. But during the 20s, there was this desire to begin to examine people by their profession or by other characteristics. So I think that spills over from photography and, paint, and it, it spills over to painting. But the, the types are also, they also deal with issues about gender. They deal with the new woman. They deal with issues of uh, gay culture. And those were also types. And there was, you know, there was, a, a, you know, a more open society, I think, in Berlin in the 1920s. It was a very, it was a very accepting society. And some of the, there's some very sympathetic portraits of gay and lesbian culture that I think we don't find, we certainly don't find it so overtly, I think, in American work of this period. Are you almost suggesting that because Germans and particularly Berliners were so interested in 
presenting themselves in a certain way that artists picked up on that the same way artists noticed the streets of the cities in, in the late teens and early 20s? I think it was probably certainly fueled by that. And it was a very open society. And I think, you know, that I think that artists, artists reflected that. I mean, certainly in the more, certainly, in, certainly in Berlin, we see that. I like to kind of wrap up with a couple questions about how much the German artists in your exhibition in these 14 years were engaged with, or aware of, consciously riffing on work that was being made outside Germany. So, for example, neoclassicism pops up in France a good bit at the end of World War One and into the 1920s. Were German artists paying attention to that? Are there works in which you think they explicitly were or were engaging with it or perhaps even reacting against it? I think the, the classicism came to Germany in a way, perhaps through the Italians and kind of came through kind of Munich. So there were Italian artists studying at the Academy in Munich together with, you know, German artists. So there was a kind of cross-fertilization that kind of came, came through that portal. I don't, you know, and, and otherwise they would have had to, to know what was being, you know, what was owned by the various museums or what was being shown in galleries. And I think for me, the, the classism in this period comes really more, I guess, through the, through, through the Munich kind of connection to the Italians. A couple of years ago, Timothy O'Benson did a show at LACMA about the ways in which Europe's art community before World War One was incredibly international, ideas flying across borders, artists too, also flying across borders. Are there places in your show where that picks up where it left off before the war, or is your sense that there's more kind of a hermetic sealing off at this point? You know, I mean, I think it's a good question. I don't know that it's something that we really, you know, dug into, but but just from, you know, what I can discern, you know, places like Berlin that had an active gallery scene, that had an active, you know, museum scene, probably would be a place where there was more of a, of a cross-fertilization than you would find, for instance, in Cologne or even, you know, in Hanover. There was a little bit more isolation, I think, in those, in those, in those cities. I mean, the only artist in your show that I know, and you know way more about this stuff than I do, that is leaving Germany and spending or trying to spend a lot of time outside Germany at this point is Beckmann, who's in Paris. Beckmann goes to Paris, and then, you know, obviously, then Beckmann finally leaves. But most of these artists weren't traveling with that same kind of, you know, it's not like a lot of them were having shows, you know, in London or, you know, or in Paris or, or in Amsterdam. I think it was a little bit more hermetic. Well, Stephanie Barron, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for inviting me. One of the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth's most significant holdings is its comprehensive collection of works by Robert Motherwell, one of the figureheads of abstract expressionism, the most important movement in the history of American art. A selection from this collection is on view now, featuring work from Motherwell's open Drunk with Turpentine, Elegies, and Collage series. For The Modern's exhibition schedule, visit themodern.org. The first comprehensive American survey of the leading contemporary artist Walid Rod is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Presented in both a gallery exhibition and as a lecture performance by the artist, Walid Rod explores the veracity of photographic and video documents in the public realm, the role of memory and narrative within discourses of conflict, 
and the construction of histories of art in the Arab world. Find out more about this compelling exhibition at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Hammer Museum presents Uh-Oh, the most comprehensive survey of the Los Angeles-based artist and writer Frances Stark. This exhibition tracks her 25-year career, from early works on paper to more recent performances, animated films, and videos, including her critically acclaimed works My Best Thing and Bobby Jesus's Alma Mater Backed with Reading the Book of David and or Paying Attention is Free. Stark's singular practice explores her own life through an extraordinary range of subjects and mediums while offering a clever critique of contemporary culture. Uh-oh! is on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles October 11th to January 24th. Visit hammer.ucla.edu. Welcome back. My next guest is Olaf Peters. He's the curator of Berlin Metropolis, 1918-1933, at the Neue Gallery in New York, which is on view through January 4th, 2016. He also contributed to the catalog for Stephanie Behrens' show, New Objectivity, Modern German Art in the Weimar Republic, 1919-1933. Olaf Peters, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Yes, hello. Thank you for having me here on the program. You note at the beginning of, of your essay in the show's fantastic catalog that few of the outstanding painters of the Weimar Republic lived in Berlin. Now, at this time, Berlin is a city of four million people. It's the second biggest city in the world after Los Angeles. It's the cultural and industrial capital of the German nation. Why are so few painters and even artists in, in Berlin th at this point? Yeah, I think it has something to do with the structure of Germany um, until today. I mean, it was never a centralized state like, for example, France or the United States with big centers like New York or Paris or London in Great Britain. It was has a very different history, different culture, and you had many centers and you have a lot of centers in Germany. And great academies, for example, were located in Munich, for example, or in Karlsruhe or in Düsseldorf. And uh, great institutions like the Bauhaus, for example, was linked to the city of Weimar. Different structure compared with major countries at the time. And therefore, the cultural life was not centered in one city, for example, Berlin or another city. But it was more diverse and academies were located in other cities and therefore the most prominent painters were linked to, to other cities in Germany. Was Berlin a place that any of these people, whether they were architects or fashion designers or artists, came together to meet and to talk and to exhibit or whatever or, or not so much? Yeah, I mean, that was happening to some degree. It started in the late 19th century in, let's say, in sort of rejection to against the official cultural policy of the Wilhelmine Empire. And you had, for example, institutions like the Berlin Secession and uh, some of the really great artists of that period, for example, Max Liebermann, were linked to that, or Lobis Corinth, who is represented with two paintings in uh, our exhibition. Um, that was something which was already starting with avant-garde movements in contrast to the official art policy even before the First World War. And after the First World War, in times of revolution, the new democratic state, you had also some groups like, for example, the Dadaist movement in Berlin or, for example, the Working Council of Art, and there you had a sort of connection, a grouping of artists, 
but also architects and designers, but mainly architects and painters. Your description of why artists didn't live in Berlin makes me wonder <laughs> why George Grosch and why Christian Schad did. Yes, some of the artists did, but uh, uh, if I'm saying in my essay that not, not really the greatest painters of the Weimar era in Germany were living there, it is, I think, of, for example, Max Beckmann, who was located in Frankfurt am Main, or, for example, Otto Dix. His career was more linked to Düsseldorf, for example, or to Dresden. He was in, in Berlin for one and a half years before he received a teaching position in Dresden. And I would, for example, consider George Gross not such a great painter, but I would say, I mean, there are really fantastic paintings. But for me, it's more about his prints and his drawings and his watercolors. So this political works, or even also the, some collages, montages he did, uh, I think that are more relevant. But somebody like Christian Schad, for example, who came to Berlin, I would say is to some degree a great painter, but he's very much, let's say, limited to the, yeah, to the uh, task of painting some portraits. And therefore, he's a little bit, I would say, limited in contrast to, for example, Max Beckmann or Otto Dix. And therefore, I would say if it really comes to the outstanding painters of that era, you will not find them in Berlin. But of course, you have for example, George Gross or the artists of the Weimar era. Is there any particular reason why Grosch and Shad wanted to be in Berlin? Why they picked Berlin for where they lived? I think that it's, I mean, since this was the capital of Germany at that time and a lot of things were going on there, I think that was a reason to go there. And uh, some of the developments in terms of the race and the spread of the city in terms of industry, in terms of politics, I think it was really an interesting place, and some of the artists made the decision to go there. One of the things I enjoyed most about your, your essay, and that, and one of the ways in which your essay kind of leads into the work in the show, is that the show has quite a number of Berlin street scenes in it. And in your essay, you talk about the experience of moving through the vastness of the city, especially by foot and by automobile. Could you talk about what that experience would have been like and maybe why painters would have been interested in it? Yeah, I think that is really one of the most fascinating topics if it comes to a metropolis like Berlin. I think it's really interesting. And we in our show make the starts with very famous Ludwig Meitner portrait, the self-portrait he did, Me and the City, that was painted. It's not really falling this period of the Weimar era because since it was painted in 1913, but I think it's an ideal starting point for our exhibition because he, as an avant-garde expressionist based in Berlin, was really talking about and painting, but also talking in an essay about the task for contemporary artists to depict the city, the metropolis, and that was linked to Berlin. And if you remember, we left that artist out, uh, for example, Ernst-Ludwig Kirchner, who came from Dresden to Berlin, even also before the First World War. His is one of the most famous groups in uh, German expressionism, and it's really a fantastic body of works. We left that out. But for me, it was really important. It is, it is something... 
artists were talking about even before the First World War and with the starting point of George Gross and his depictions of Berlin streets yeah, from 1914 onwards in 1917, for example, but also in the early 1920s. For me, uh, let's say, sort of chance to explain in a visual manner the kind of also still stylistic development from expressionism to a sort of cubo-futurism to early verism and new objectivity painting. And also in the case of George Gross, for me, it was important to not only to show the late 1910s, but also that you can see in the first room of our exhibition, but also to come back to George Cross in the last room of our exhibition. And there we have two great street scenes from 1931, so that you also can really see the sort of artistic development George Cross did. The other, for me, important point to make, it's difficult to show that in an exhibition is the whole aspect of yeah, not only depicting the city, but also de experiencing the city, to describe the city. And then it comes more to, uh, to to literature, for example. So like somebody like Alfred Dublin, for example, is describing Berlin in his famous novel Berlin Alexanderplatz, for example, or Franz Hessel, who is walking through Berlin and is describing that. But not only walking, but also using the automobile to experience the city. And uh, Walter Benjamin would be another very important intellectual figure who was also with his Einbahnstraße, the one-way road, also describing that. And I think that is one of the most interesting aspects of Berlin that comes to, to the metropolis, how to experience that. And that is also leading you, if you're walking through the city, like now walking through uh, New York, it is the same. It is coming to things like fashion, uh, shopping windows, etc. And And how can that be described? And therefore, for example, in our exhibition, the uh, Walter Ruttmann movie Berlin Symphony of the City is also very important because there you can, in a in a film, in a movie, which is 60 minutes long, you can really experience Berlin for one day, starting in the early morning and uh, ending around midnight after you have experienced a dinner and some uh, cabarets and the nightlife of Berlin. And that is for me really imp important to, to bring that out, although this is an art exhibition and not a let's say, an exhibition of the cultural history of Berlin, but nothing. So speaking of the automobile and its role in the city, there are a couple of pictures in the show by Raoul Hausmann that show, you know, the date's 1931, so pretty late in the 1918 to 33 time period of the show, but there are pictures in which we see trucks and cars on the street with horse-drawn carriages with electric trolleys. I'm, I'm guessing that you wanted to make a point about how even as late as 1931, Berlin's in a little bit of a tra still transitioning toward modernity or? Yeah, exactly. I mean, one major point for, for me was, although that was only to some degree successful, I would say, is to work with such an exhibition a little bit against the cliches we have. I mean, there is a sort of image of Berlin, the roaring 1920s, but the reality of a city like Berlin was totally different. Really, the reality of Berlin, the reality is still 
that it was difficult. The workers, for example, were riding uh, by train coming um, to the city or things like that, or even horses were on the streets. So you cannot you cannot compare, for example, the degree of automobilization in Berlin with, uh, for example, the United States at that time. At that time, but of course you had some images of the United States in Germany and you had things and some ideas to develop the future city of Berlin, taking in account, for example, a development of traffic. And, and therefore, uh, you have descriptions like that, but in the feuilletons and in reviews, etc., you find also descriptions which are saying, oh, Berlin, I mean, they want something and they try to be very advanced, advanced but in fact, there is still a sort of, yeah, how's it called, um, a sort of provincial aspect of that city. And that's something I would say you can even experience today. I mean, it's, today you can experience the same, the, let's say, the same difference between an image created by some people and also brought back, for example, to the United States by some people who spent some days or some weeks in Berlin. But that's also sort of creating an image or a myth. And the reality is uh, often very different from that. And uh, for me, it was important in that show not to to perpetuate that, but also, of course, you have to do something to some degree, something like that. Otherwise, the expectations of visitors would be not fulfilled. But on the other side, for me, it's always important to install some artwork, some aspects which are irritating that kind of image you might have uh, from Berlin the 1920s. So a moment ago, you mentioned that Max Beckmann, arguably Germany's greatest artist of the first half of the 20th century, didn't live in Berlin. He, he was in Frankfurt and in Paris, for that matter, during these years. But he visited Berlin in 1922 and made a portfolio of 10 prints, four of which are in the exhibition. What do they suggest to us, tell us about Berlin and of Beckmann's experience of the city? Yeah, that's that's really important. I mean, Max Beckmann, he really came to Berlin and was curious about what is going on in the capital of the city. And the print portfolio Voyage to Berlin is showing us different aspects of that. For example, the nightlife of Berlin, but also, for example, the war cripples in the city. And uh, what I found very interesting, and therefore we installed that print portfolio in the context of the Dada, the first international Dada art fair, although Max Beckmann was not a part of Berlin Dada and did not exhibit with them. For me, it was important because you also can find political aspect in this print portfolio on two of the works you can, which are entitled the, the uh, people in despair of yeah, in despair, the enttäuschten. I don't know, but what is really the appropriate English translation of that in the moment. But uh, there you can see that people are really disappointed when it comes to the political development of the Weimar Republic. For example, that the revolution was not really successful, that there was, although it's now a democracy in uh, Weimar, for example, the old elites responsible, for example, for the First World War were still in power to some degree. And it was necessary for the new government to build the new state on their shoulders and to use them and to integrate them. But that was also 
something which 12 years later at the end of the Weimar Republic was really a problem that you had to integrate these, uh, yeah, to some degree, anti-democrats to make a start for the Weimar Republic. And that is reflected in Max Bergmann's portfolio. And there's, for example, you can read the name of Karl Liebknecht. And Karl Liebknecht was one of the far leftist politicians at that time. And he was murdered by right-wing extremists in 19. And therefore, he's really reflecting these things. And that is, I think, important, although you very often have a feeling that Max Beckmann is not to a degree like George Gross or John Hartfield, the political artist, but he was also reflecting these political circumstances at the in the first years of the Weimar Republic. You mentioned John Hartfield. The show is full of collage, not just Hartfield's, but Teo Otto's, Hannah Hook's. Is there any particular reason collage was a good and fitting medium for this time and place? Yeah, collage and montage for me are for two reasons important. One, one, the first reason is that the Dadaists using collage techniques were very much against the traditional concept of, for example, painting. And they were really destroying this old concept of the composition, for example, or the artwork as an organic artwork with a composition. And this tradition leading back to the years of uh, Renaissance. And this kind of concept of painting uh, also linked, for example, to uh, the female body and things like that, that was really voluntarily destroyed by the Dadaists, like, for example, by somebody like uh, George Gross or also the grotesque images of uh, Hannah Hirsch. That is one thing that you can really can see the, yeah, the adoption of, of avant-garde techniques by the politicized avant-garde in Germany after the defeat uh, in the First World War. That is one thing. The other thing is that collage and montage are to, I would say, really appropriate media or techniques to express the experience of the metropolis. For example, aspects like fragmentation, distortion, things like other things like not this kind of continuity, visual shocks you experience uh, when it comes to advertisement and things like that, or traffic, etc. These are, I think, also yeah, elements of the metropolis, of the life uh, in the metropolis, which are reflected in such mediums. And there you have also the link between these artworks, works on paper, collages, montages, but also to the technique of film and movie making. And, and then it's yeah, you're again talking about Walter Ruttmann and his Berlin Symphony of the City, his movie. And for me, one of the fascinating points in the exhibition is that we are not only showing the movie, but, and also the film poster, which is really striking in a very constructivist manner. But we have all the existing uh, photo montage, uh, photo collages made to advertise. The important thing, these are not film stills, because in the film you can see just normal street scenes, for example, um, or lunch scene or something like that, that's boring, but they used really important artists like, for example, Umbo, to produce photomontages to evoke this aspect of montage, which you will not find in the movie, but is a sort of complementary strategy 
to promote the movie. And I think that is really, uh, for me, one of the highlights of the exhibition. I think altogether we have 12 images. I'm glad you brought those up because I was going to. <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have some images of those advertising posters or advertising photo collages up on manpodcast.com. In the catalog, at least, you move from these 12 photo collage advertisements right into Max Beckman's film studio, which comes a few years later. I'm, I'm guessing you're making a link between what Beckman is, is doing in the painting and what we see in the photo collages, that he's learning from not just photo collage, but from the use of photo collage as advertisement. Yeah, the Beckman painting for me was really important to get that from St. Louis. And the reason for that is I wrote my second book, my so-called in Germany, it's so-called on Max Beckmann. And in that book, I'm trying to develop the thesis that this painting was extremely important for to Max Beckmann since, I mean, the background of the painting is that he relocated to Berlin. He made the decision after he, he lost his teaching position in Frankfurt to go into the anonymity of the metropolis. He moved to Berlin, but also to the Bavarian landscape to escape the political circumstances, the rise of Nazism at that time. But he moved to Berlin. He lived there. He was a good friend of, or well known to the actor Heinrich George. And they visited the film studios in Babelsberg to see some shootings with Marlene Dietrich. And the painting you can see in our exhibition has a structure of film setting, but it's like it's a triptych-like structure. You have three different scenes which are separated, and then you have this huge hand, this big hand holding the camera and filming that. And the idea in my interpretation in my book was to say the first triptych of Max Beckmann, the famous departure triptych, which is at the, in the collection of MoMA, and the New Yorkers will know that painting, that is the idea to create that triptych with also this kind of collage technique where you have interiors and then you have a landscape in the middle is going back to the structure of this particular small painting film studio. That is the idea behind that. But that is a different argument. For me, in the context of the Berlin Metropolis exhibition, that is important because he it's also the link now of the great painter Max Beckmann is in Berlin. He finally made it because of the historical circumstances. Now he is in Berlin. He has a sort of yeah, friends and people he knows. He's walking around with them, visiting, for example, film shootings. So he's also part of the society. But he learned something from film, which is then extremely important for his own concept of painting. That is something I cannot develop in the exhibition. But it is also linked, for example, to the collage structure of photomontages uh, promoting a symphony movie. And therefore, there is for me really a link that it, even if it comes to, to a traditional painter and the, the self-understanding of Beckmann was always, I am a great German painter and I'm rivaling Ligi and Picasso in Paris. But he is changing his concept of painting, the pictorial space, for example, because of the experience what he saw in terms of avant-garde techniques or movies, and, the, and he adopted that structure for painting. And I think that is one of the, yeah, really in a very important step when it comes to the concept of his 
part of his painting, I would say, from the early 1930s onwards. There's a great spread in the catalog in which you juxtapose Film Studio with one of the advertising photo collages, and we'll try to reproduce that on, on manpodcast.com. The section in the show on architecture has a strongly utopianist bent. Is is the kind of utopianism that kind of bounces off of these architectural drawings present in other parts of the show, or is utopianism kind of mainly confined to the architects? I think it is more linked to the uh, to architecture, and and it is uh, for me something parallel to what was happening in to the Dada movement. And for example, one of the important figures of that time, Mies van der Rohe in Berlin, was linked to the Dada movement. You can see him on these four or five pictures which survived from the opening of the first international Dada fair, and Mies van der Rohe is standing there. And for me, it's interesting. You had these sort of groups groups, architectural theoretical discussions in Berlin at that time. The glass chain, the Gläserne Kette, is really important with architects like Walter Grokius, founder of the first director of a Bauhaus in Weimar, but he was also around in Berlin and in the 1920s he was also building in Berlin. The Sanderhoe is part of that. Bruno example, the brothers are very important in that context, but they were not able to build because of the economic situations. Only very few buildings were built, like, for example, Mendelssohn's Einstein Tower. That's one of the few examples. And when we have this model for the Friedrich skyscraper, 1921, but that was never built. And that is, for me, very important that because of the instable, precarious economic situation of the Weimar Republic, it was not, in the early 1920s, it was more or less impossible to build something. But the same architects were later responsible for huge housing complexes. And that was one of the main tasks for the young republic to build apartment houses to solve these uh, dramatic yeah, circumstances of housing and living in a metropolis like Berlin, but all over Germany. And that is, for me, a sort of link. So you have the same architects, but in this room devoted to uh, dealing with architecture, you can also see the next step going away from utopia to really housing uh, projects, which were real and were very important in Berlin. The Max Krajewski pictures of Martin Punitzer's building uh, are extraordinary. There's a lot of architectural photography from, from the late 20s at this point, too. So there's a section in the catalog, and I presume in the show, that addresses how women experienced Berlin in, in the Weimar years. Everything the, the section includes everything from fashion, so clothing women would have worn, perfume packaging design, and, of course, art by women. Why was this an important thing to include? Why was why was this a particular focus that you wanted to kind of pull out and and spotlight? I mean, the all all the structure of the exhibition is the the decision to divide the whole period into three sections. The first section dealing with revolution and the start of the Weimar Republic, then a phase of stabilization between 1924 until 1929, 1930. And uh, the last part is also coming back to a state of crisis, the political rise of uh, fascism and the economic crisis. And the middle part, and also because of of the fact that these really great artists were 
not painters, for example, are, are not really based in Berlin. We made the decision, what is really now symptomatic for Berlin? What is really characteristic for Berlin? And makes also Berlin to some degree special in the context of the Weimar Republic in Germany. And then it really comes to uh, fashion, to the newspapers, to revue, to cabaret, to the movie industry and these things. And, and in one room, we are bringing that together. And we had also the chance to to irritate that a little bit with a person like, for example, Hannah Höch. You will found her in the first room where it comes because she was the, the only prominent female artist in the context of Berlin Dada. But she continued her works and she made fantastic uh, series of collage, but also she transferred this collage technique and montage technique into painting um, in the mid-1920s. And we have examples of that in that context. But we can't, we have a, we make a sort of juxtaposition, a contrast where it comes to yeah, really fashion drawings, for example, or uh, even uh, dresses we have in the show. And I think it's important to to see, yeah, there is a sort of really an industry and Berlin is a really a fashion center at that time in Germany. Uh, that is one thing. The other thing is that some artists were producing, for example, watercolors, which were reproduced in the fashion magazines. Therefore, we have, uh, for example, four watercolors by Jean Mammon. She is pretty well known, but you will find her also in the context uh, with her with her artworks in the context of some fashion magazines. And um, I think that is an interesting aspect. We also have a chance to link it again to the movie industry. We have all the costume designs from uh, the Metropolis movie by Fritz Lang. And that is really important because then you can compare it has it is something for the film and on the other side these are also sort of fashion drawings and we have for example one diving painting from a contest of that time artists were asked to paint the most prom the, the, the most beautiful portrait of a german woman in the late 1920s and we have a Werner Peiner painting from that competition that was presented in a gallery there the winning the winning uh, example or the painting first prize was destroyed during the second world war but great artists like for example christian Schad also participated and for me it was important to have at least one example from that competition because then it comes really to the link between the serious artists on the one side and the fashion and fashion industry on the other side. And I contrast this painting by Paina, who then later became one of the most prominent Nazi painters, which is also interesting, with Christian Schad and Otto Dix. And then you have three very different things with very different textures, very different uh, temperatures in terms of color, also different types of women on these pictures, but all the three are linked because all the three paintings are depicting the so-called Neue Frau, the new woman of the Weimar Republic. And that is for me very important not to give you three examples very similar representing the new woman, but to differentiate on an on a visual level that you can really experience standing in front of the paintings. Every example is showing you the new woman. 
But what does that mean, or did that? What what did it meant during the Weimar Republic? It was different. The Pioneer painting really stands out as being different. The, the 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 woman is posed in front of kind of an Orientalist print, probably Japanese, and she's holding a blue orchid in a kind of showy Holbein-esque way. It's a, it's a very different painting from the Dix or the Shad. Yeah, and it's really he's really playing with the tradition of painting. You can trace it back, for example, to Manet's Solar painting, where you have this Japanese print in the background too. It is the new woman. The painting style is more conservative. It is oil on paper, and the blue lily is maybe linked to Christian iconography. The fashion she is wearing. I was told it's coming from Paris, so it's really the most spectacular and most contemporary fashion of that time, and so forth. And that makes it really an interesting interesting painting. But if it comes to the artist, you're really in the field of, with other paintings, really a sort of more conservative artists, even a cultural pessimistic artist. Yeah, it's a great, It's a, a, I mean, three very different paintings. We'll try to have all three on manpodcast.com. Olaf Peters, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you very much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.